We're kind of in Isaiah chapter 60, though we're not really going to be that much in that chapter in particular this morning. I'm trying to give some principles that will help us understand Isaiah chapter 60. We're in chapters 60, 61, and 62 right now of Isaiah in our series in Isaiah. And these are very high chapters. They're very celebratory chapters. Uh, it's a real high point in Isaiah, and we're, what's being celebrated is that the Lord has accomplished salvation for himself because there was nobody else to do it. The Lord looked around and saw that there was no justice, and there was no one who could bring justice. And so the Lord decided that he would work salvation for himself. And the result of the Lord's working in Isaiah chapter 59, the chapter right before where we are at, is a statement in verse 19 which says, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, from the east. From the east to the west. What the Lord has done for himself will affect all the world. In fact, it affects all creation. But it's a celebration of what only God could do. That's the chapters where we're at right now. In chapter 60... We identified last week, we worked through the chapter at least the first time, and we identified five results from the Lord working salvation for himself. This is what I have to do since I don't have a video projector. Number one, the Lord is glorified in working salvation for himself. Number two, Jerusalem is exalted. In just a moment, you're going to hear uh, chapter 60 read again, and all those pronouns you, you this and you that and and this will come to you and they will come to you. The you is in reference to Jerusalem. It's not in reference to uh, the Jews, the Gentiles, the believers. It's specifically the you is in reference to the city of Jerusalem. The Lord is glorified. Jerusalem is exalted. Jerusalem's children come to her. Those are the Jews. The Israelites, salvation is extended to the Jews. Number four, Jerusalem's temple is exalted. Jerusalem's temple is beautified. Jerusalem's temple is glorified. And number five, Gentiles worship too, which is probably the most surprising of the five results at least from an Old Testament or a First Testament perspective. Even Gentiles are celebrating and worshiping what the Lord has done. Those five results in Isaiah chapter 60. But to truly appreciate what the Lord has done in working salvation for himself, particularly as it relates to Jerusalem, which is the one the word that keeps popping up over and over, because what the Lord has done, it kind of the focal point is the city of Jerusalem. And these wonderful things that have happened to Jerusalem really can only rightly be appreciated in light of what will happen to Jerusalem, which isn't beautiful and isn't pretty and isn't lovely and you don't want to talk about. So the interesting thing is here... If uh, we're in Isaiah, and Isaiah was written, he he wrote over decades, but a good round figure is Isaiah wrote and lived at 700 B.C., 700 years before Jesus. So Isaiah talked about the Lord being glorified by exalting Jerusalem, Jerusalem's children coming back to her, Jerusalem's temple being beautified, and the Gentiles worshiping to All of this would happen, this Isaiah wrote in a day when the temple looked pretty good as it was. It was Solomon's temple. Uh, Jerusalem was doing pretty well in the day. Jerusalem didn't seem to have a lot of problems, and yet Isaiah prophesied these wonderful things because Isaiah also said in an earlier chapter, there's coming a day when Jerusalem will be destroyed. The Babylonians are going to destroy Jerusalem, They're going to level the walls. They're going to rob the temple. They're going to destroy the temple. All will be lost. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 39. But good news, the Lord's going to accomplish a salvation for himself that will include this full restoration, this full renewal. 
Now, Jeremiah is the prophet in your Bible. He's the next prophet on the docket. After Isaiah, you're going to find the prophet Jeremiah, who lived about 100 plus years after Isaiah. Jeremiah didn't just prophesy about the walls of Jerusalem coming down. Jeremiah didn't just prophesy about the Jews being removed out of their homeland and going into exile. Jeremiah lived it. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem. He didn't just foretell it. He lived it. And Jeremiah would be able to look back to what Isaiah wrote over a hundred years prior, and he would be able, by faith, to say, but God has promised this isn't the end of Jerusalem. God has promised he will be glorified in that he will exalt this city. He will bring her children back. The temple will be beautified once again, and even the Gentiles will worship the Lord our God. Jeremiah would have known that because that's what Isaiah prophesied. Jeremiah prophesied those things as well. So here's the big picture. Here's why I'm going to spend a lot of time developing this theme from Isaiah. And we're going to go back to Haggai chapter 2, which we took a sidetrack there anyway. Uh, Haggai goes a long way to helping us understand what's happening in Isaiah 60. So I'm going to go back to Haggai again which in a sense is going forward because Haggai came after both Isaiah and Jeremiah, but that's probably already confusing you. But the point is this. The point is this. We gather as a church because we believe in resurrection. That's the point. We gather as a church because we believe in a God of resurrection and life from the dead. We believe in a God that works miracles of reversal and renewal when it seems all hope is lost. If you've read your Bible on any level, that is one of the resounding themes of all of Scripture. Because we go through life where one chapter ends and another chapter begins. We go through life where we celebrate spring and we enjoy summer and then everything turns dead and the leaves fall off the tree and we go into winter. And then it starts all over again. Most of life is this ebb and this flow of ups and downs, goods and bads, and and things that we wish didn't have to end, but they do end, and and these very low spots. And, And into this pattern, into this ecclesiastical, it seems like the vanity of life, and one thing comes and another thing goes, and and there's nothing new under the sun. Interrupting all of that is a God of resurrection, which says it's not going to stay that way. It won't remain that way. We can get, I can get so lost in what is lost that I forget that I worship a God of resurrection. You lose loved ones, you lose health, you lose friends, you lose finances, you lose dreams, you lose all these things. You lose a baby. You lose all these things and they bring tears. But the Bible says we worship a God of resurrection. So whatever experience you have gone through or you will go through, when God is your Savior, when you've embraced the forgiveness of sins that only comes through the work of of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a child of resurrection. It doesn't end with what you see. It doesn't end with what you experience. It ends with what God says is true. Even when all hope seems lost. Even when all hope seems lost. A God of resurrection. So that's why we're doing all that I'm trying to do in the the chapters we're uh, going to work through. 60 to 62, Haggai chapter 2. We're going to be all over the Bible this morning in lots of different places. So I want to do two things. I want to celebrate the God of resurrection that does these wonderful things in chapter 60. But before I do that, I want us to go to the dark period of Jerusalem. I want us to experience the sorrow of Jerusalem, the pain of Jerusalem, and the loss of Jerusalem. Jeremiah, after he wrote his big prophecy, his big book that we know as the uh, prophet Jeremiah, he wrote a short five, I think it's five chapters, it might be six, called the Lamentations of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah lamented all that was lost. And in the Bible, 
Jerusalem is often personified as a city. So in Lamentations chapter 1, Jerusalem, the city, is lamenting what is lost. After we listen to Jerusalem's lament over what is lost, we will celebrate the Lord's promise of resurrection, of renewal. It's not over yet, though the walls were torn down. Solomon's temple was raised, burned, torn down. Though all of that was lost, it's not the end. So I consider my time when I get to teach, I've always enjoyed the time I get to teach. Um, My entire life teaching the Bible, I have coveted that time. I treasure that time. And so I'm going to do what I don't like to do lightly. I'm going to have you listen to, it's going to be nine, ten minutes of scripture read by David Suchet. That means I'm giving up nine or ten minutes of things that I would like to say, but I think there's great value in just hearing what God says in his word. I know Paul writes to Timothy to give public attention to the reading of scripture. So this is giving public attention strictly to what God said as he said it. I think there's value in that, greater value than anything I could say. But it does mean I'm cutting myself nine or ten minutes short Uh, And I hate to do that because ideally there's no way I'm going to finish what I want to say today. It's going to take this week and next week to put it all together. And we've got a lot of people missing this week, which in a couple weeks when I'm back, uh, who knows how much sense this will all make. But at any rate, uh, listen to David Suchet, Lamentations chapter 1. You can turn in your Bibles there if you want, but I don't recommend it. And I don't recommend it unless you have an NIV, New International Version, I typically use the English Standard Version. And I find it distracting to listen to Scripture read if it doesn't match what I'm seeing. So for myself, it is easier just to close my eyes, just listen to the text being read, take it in. After we listen to Lamentations chapter 1, then you can follow along on this blue sheet to Isaiah chapter 60, read from the, from the New International Version as well. And if you have this blue sheet, then you can not only take it in, uh, but you can also read it and follow along. I couldn't put both chapters on the same blue sheet. So let's start by just embracing the, the loss of Jerusalem in Lamentations 1. It goes like this. Lamentations chapter 1. How deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate, her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters, Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly, and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. 
there was none to comfort her. Look, Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have been hung on my neck, and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. This is why I weep, and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbors become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. People have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my distress. They rejoice at what you have done. May you bring the day you have announced, so that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my sins. My groans are many, and my heart is faint. The word of the Lord. So that's a very low spot in Jerusalem. Every, they, she's lost everything. She has no friends. She's been plundered. It seems hopeless. That's what Jeremiah experienced. That's what Jeremiah saw. In light of that, Isaiah said, 115 years earlier, we will listen to Isaiah chapter 60, listen to the great reversal, the great resurrection, the great change that the Lord has effected where it seems there is no hope. This one you can follow along on your blue sheet if you prefer. Isaiah 60. Isaiah chapter 60 Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. 
Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar, with their silver and gold, to the honour of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendour. Foreigners will rebuild your walls, and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favour I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that people may bring you the wealth of their nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn my sanctuary and I will glorify the place for my feet. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Although you have been forsaken and hated, with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Saviour, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and well-being your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. And then on your blue sheet, I've got a series of questions there. How, when, and where is Haggai's prophecy fulfilled, which we'll look at in just a moment? How, when, and where is or was Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled? Should we expecting a future, be expecting future fulfillment? And then secondly, the second batch is how literal or metaphorical, that is figurative, should we understand these and many other prophecies? In other words, when the Lord says, I'm going to bring the wealth of nations to you. When the Lord says, they're going to be bringing your children on ships and carrying your daughters on their hips. How literal or metaphorical is that? When the Lord says that I will be your light and you won't need the sun. How literal is that? Or how metaphorical is that? What is all this meant to teach? How are we to take it? When was it fulfilled? Has it been fulfilled? I would start off by saying at least one consideration is this. How literal or figurative was the, was the destruction of Jerusalem? And I think everybody would say, we know historically looking back, it was completely historical. It was completely literal. Jerusalem really was destroyed. The people really did go into exile. The walls really were, were torn down. People really did go into the Lord's temple and take out the treasures before they burnt the rest. If all of that is true, it at least suggests 
that Jerusalem's being exalted will also literally take place, but exactly like what we just read? Or something different from that? The same thing could be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. How literal was his crucifixion? How literal was his humiliation? How literal was a crown of thorns? How literal was it that he stood before the high priest and then he stood before Pilate and King Herod and he eventually was nailed to a cross and hung to die? How literal was that? And if it was literal, doesn't it suggest that when Christ says, I will come back in power and glory and King of kings and Lord of lords, that's not just metaphorical language, that's literal too. I think all of that plays into this. I don't mean to make it sound simple because... Uh, there's, I think it's a mix of both, and that's what I want to try to wade through in the next couple sessions that I have to teach. Teaching something about the great reversal or the great renewal or the great resurrection of God's redemptive plan. So let me start by having you go to Haggai. If uh, you're using a pew Bible, you will find Haggai on page 791. Now, we were in Haggai just a few weeks ago because of that little detour we took. So these are somewhat familiar passages. A Pew Bible, 791. Haggai is just two short little chapters. And Haggai has something to say about this temple or a temple in Jerusalem. Uh, We read where Jeremiah said the temple was destroyed. And then Haggai seems to have this very optimistic view of a new temple. So I want to read this to you, and I want to apply how literal or metaphorical is this language. It will help us in Isaiah. So in Haggai chapter 2, I'm going to pick up at verse 3. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. You're going to see two things. The Lord is going to make some exhortations for right now. And we spent a whole week on that because they're the same types of exhortations that Christ would make to his church. Here we are, we're the church. We're waiting for Christ to come back in power and glory. What do we do while we wait? What Haggai tells the Israelites to do while they are in waiting is what we're to do. But the Lord doesn't just tell you what to do now. He also gives you promises for the future which also correspond to certain promises Christ has given to the church. So let's look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. Haggai says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. They're to be strong. They're to work. They're to fear not. Those are their present duties. And that is they're supposed to rebuild the temple. Solomon's temple is no more. It's not going to do any good thinking about it. It's not going to do any good wishing it were there. It's not going to do any good remembering it. Build a new temple is what they're tasked with. And then the Lord gives these promises, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So the future promises have to do with shaking and filling this new house which seems so insignificant before you. It doesn't even begin to compare to the beauty of Solomon's temple. But the Lord says, I will shake heaven and earth and the nations, and the gold and the silver is going to pour into this house, and its glory will be greater than the former house. How literal is that? Was that fulfilled? How metaphorical is that? 
That's the tension of understanding prophecy. So a key word that we wanna, I want to spend some time talking about is the word glory. Very important word in Scripture. I'm going to fill this house with glory, and the glory of this house will... Uh, of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. The word glory. The word glory, the word, the word that's most commonly used in the Old Testament for glory is the word uh, kabod. It's, a, it's actually pronounced different depending on whether it's a verb, a noun, or an adjective. But it's the word kabod, the word glory. Its root meaning is that which is heavy. Heavy. It's something heavy. It's not only used for God's glory... It's for things that are heavy. It means things that are significant. Things that you can't take lightly. You can't dismiss this. It's heavy. You've got to deal with it. You know, a cold, eh, a cold is a light thing. You can push through a cold, but other things are heavy. You've got to deal with them. If you don't deal with them, they will destroy you. I will give you the first three uses in the entire Old Testament where the word glory is used. None of which refer to God all of which have this basic meaning of something that is heavy. You can't miss it. You have to deal with it. You can't pretend it isn't there. The very first time the word glory is used is in, is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. It is after Abraham receives a covenant from the Lord. I will make of you a great nation, the Lord says to Abraham. I will make your name great. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And then after that covenant, in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10, it says this. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. It was a glorious famine. Well, you wouldn't want to translate it. It was a glorious famine. But that's the word that's used. It means... You have to deal with this famine. It's not like Abram missed a meal. It's not like, yeah, the cupboards are getting bare. We ought to go down to Egypt and go shopping. The famine is severe. It's heavy. You've got to deal with this famine. This famine will wipe you out if you pretend like it's no big deal. It's a big deal. That's the first time the word glory is ever used. Second time is in the very next chapter, which describes Abram this way. Now, Abram was very rich. His riches were heavy. They were significant. They were weighty. It's not like, oh, Abram always had a little roll of money in his pocket. He was a a significantly wealthy man. You had to deal with Abram. You had to know that about Abram. And yet he lived in a tent by the Lord's command. The third time the word is ever used in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. The Lord is talking to Abram, and he says this. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I'm going to go down there and see. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is glorious. Now, you wouldn't want to use that word. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's weighty. It's heavy. It needs to be dealt with. You can't pretend like it isn't there. You can't pretend like it's no big deal. Oops, and go on. It's heavy, weighty sin. That's the first three times the word is ever used in the Bible. What about the first time it is ever used of God? Well, you could say the heavens declare the glory of God, and so we know when God created, it showed something of what a heavy, weighty, glorious, powerful God we serve. But the word glory isn't used in Genesis of God creating, though he was glorious when he did. So in the Bible, when does the Bible for the first time say that our God is a, call it an awesome God, a, a heavy God, a weighty God, a God to be dealt with. He's no insignificant God. When is the first time that ever happened? When do you suppose? Just think. The answer is, it's not until the book of Exodus. It's not until the book of Exodus. It's not until after the Israelites leave the land of slavery, the land of Egypt. It's not until after Pharaoh and his army are swallowed up in the Red Sea. And after they're swallowed up in the Red Sea, Moses and the Israelites are praising God 
in Genesis chapter 15, singing songs. Our God has delivered us. And then in Genesis chapter 16, they're complaining they've got nothing to eat. And would that God had just let us stay in Egypt already because life is difficult. And so the Lord tells Moses, Genesis chapter 16, verse 4, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. You will see the the weightiness, the significance, the power, the awesomeness of our Lord who is going to rain down manna from heaven to feed you because he's heard your grumbling against him. And then in verse 9 it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The glory, the weightiness, the heaviness, the significance, the awesomeness of the Lord appeared in a cloud. They saw the glory of the Lord in that cloud who will feed them. It will last for 40 years because of their unbelief. They'll perish in the wilderness, that generation. For 40 years, the glory of the Lord will rain down manna from heaven so that they're fed every day. The second time the word is used so far as Israel is concerned is in uh, when Moses receives the Ten Commandments for the second time in Exodus chapter 24. Uh, Moses broke the first ten commandments, the first tablets of stone, because Israel was worshiping a golden calf. The second time in Exodus chapter 24, it goes like this. Then Moses, then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Now, if, if you're already paying attention, with me to this point, one of the things you'll notice in Scripture is that the glory of the Lord is frequently associated with a cloud. The glory of the Lord appeared to Israel in the wilderness. When he gave them manna, it appeared as a cloud. Moses is getting the Ten Commandments for the second time, and a cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on the mount, and a cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of, the midst of the, out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So why is the glory of the Lord associated with a cloud? Two things. Number one, the cloud represents the presence of the Lord is with you. They know he's with. We see the cloud. The presence of the Lord is with us, but it's a hidden presence. It's a hidden presence. Uh, scripture doesn't like outline it like in a book. Here's why you've got a cloud and here's why it's associated with the glory. But I think if you think this through and if you look at the way the passages are written, I think what's being communicated is just like clouds outside kind of hide the sun, kind of hide the glory of the sun, kind of mediate the glory of the sun. I mean, in the morning uh, when I first came here, these windows were all open and it's really bright and so I close the curtains, but when I close the curtains on, on this east side, I can't, I've got to close my eyes because the sun is, is shining in so brightly, it's blinding. Now, if it's a cloudy day, I can look outside the window and it's not a problem. But if you happen to walk in direct sunlight and you're not ready for it, it's blinding. In that sense, the glory of the Lord is so blinding to the likes of us mere mortals stained by sin that God hides his glory on some level in a cloud to mitigate, to mediate, so that we're not overcome and destroyed by his glory. So in the Old Testament, what you commonly read is the glory of the Lord is accompanied, it's kind of hidden in this cloud. So that you know it's his presence, 
but it's not the full experience of it, it would overcome you. It would destroy you. So that's the second time. Then, by the end of uh, the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, the Lord has given Moses, he's given Aaron, he's given the people explicit commands how he will be worshipped in a tabernacle. And the tabernacle in the Old Testament was roughly about like one side of our pews, like from the front pew to the, to the back wall. That was the tabernacle. That was the gist of it. Now, there was a courtyard outside, but the actual tabernacle that the priests ever went in was only about half of what we have for pews. And they did all this work. They put together the furniture. There were all these layers of, of uh, coverings for the tabernacle. It was very uh, ornate. Uh, it was very complex. And when it was all said and done, it reads like this. Exodus chapter 40, verse 33. So Moses finished the work of constructing the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle in a cloud. God's glory blessed that tabernacle. My presence is associated with that building you made in in accordance with the commands I gave you. Fast forward about 500 years. Solomon is king, and according to the command of David and by permission of the Lord, Solomon builds a temple for the Lord, not this temporary tabernacle is, is moved as the case may be, but Solomon builds a permanent temple. The temple is about twice as big, so it's about the size of our sanctuary all the way to the back front wall, like the entrance in the, on the south side there. Uh, so it's about twice as big. And you read about it in First Kings, you read about it in Chronicles. When they're done building Solomon's temple, here's what I read. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The Lord, again, is pleased with his temple, which has been constructed according to his commands uh, after the same pattern as the tabernacle. And now the glory of the Lord in the form of this cloud fills the temple just like it filled the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord. So this is the theme I'm developing. Now in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is a prophet who will come another 400 some years after Solomon's temple. Ezekiel will prophesy about Solomon's temple being destroyed. And um, this is in Ezekiel chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. So Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem. He's not living there. He was taken in exile. He's already living in Babylon. But the temple is still there. And, and Ezekiel finds out from the Lord that that temple is going to be completely destroyed. And Ezekiel, in, this, in these chapters, 8 to 11, it's really one vision. It's not, there really should be no chapter divisions there. So 8, 9, 10, and 11 in Ezekiel... Here's what Ezekiel finds. In chapter 8, the Lord says, Ezekiel, I'm going to transport you by vision to see what's happening in my temple. Solomon's temple, the one where the glory filled. Remember that one? Abominations are taking place in my temple. In my temple. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 8 says, chapter 8 and verse 4 says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there. Where is there? The glory of the God of Israel was there in the temple, the same place where they are worshiping idols and committing these abominations before the Lord their God. It's like, here we are worshiping as a church, and we turn this church into some sort of a a licentious brothel. And then on Sunday, we worship here too. And the other six days a week, it looks like Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord shows Ezekiel, that's what's happening in my temple. And my glory's there. So in Ezekiel chapter 9, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. God's glory, in this form of a cloud, rested on top of the Ark of the Covenant. There was a mercy seat. 
And on that mercy seat were cherub with wings that overstretched the covering. And the glory of God went up from that ark, that mercy seat, the glory of the God hovered away from it and went to the threshold. Ezekiel chapter 10, it repeats it. Chapter 10 and verse 4, the glory of God went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord went up from above that Ark of the Covenant. It filled the house. It filled Solomon's temple on the inside as it's moving from this location on top of the mercy seat to filling the house, the temple of the Lord. Chapter 10 and verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. Not the cherubs on top of the Ark of the Covenant, but the real cherubim, these spiritual creatures which none of us have ever seen, nor do I think we would want to, but these real cherubim which accompany the presence of God and worship Him continually. The glory of the Lord goes from above the Ark of the Covenant to the threshold filling the house to now where the actual cherubim are that we've, we've never seen. It's moving. And then finally in, Jer- in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 22, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with their wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the glory has departed from Israel. And with the glory departing from Israel and the glory departing from Solomon's temple, Solomon's temple cannot but be condemned and cannot but be destroyed by Babylonians. God no longer has his presence with his people. And you get this sense of the Lord lamenting that he's leaving his people as they will be destroyed and go into exile. Because that's not what the Lord wants to do for his people. He wants to bring them peace. He wants to forgive them of their sins, but they commit these abominations in his own temple where his glory is. And so God's glory incrementally in those chapters leaves his people. Seventy some years later, the Jews will come back from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Haggai says, build that temple. And the glory of this temple will be greater than the glory of the former temple. Question, did the glory ever fill the second temple? Answer, not that I can see. I think in Jesus' day, so far as I can read in Scripture, if a man would to violate the law of the temple and walk, parade himself into the Holy of Holies, there's no glory in there. There's no place in Scripture that says like Moses' tabernacle, or Solomon's temple, that the the glory of the Lord filled that second temple that Zerubbabel built. There's no glory there. Except for the fact that Christ adorned that temple by walking in its courtyards, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. So in a sense, the glory of the second temple was greater than Solomon's, not because the glory of the Lord in the the form of a cloud filled it, but because Christ, the eternal Son of God, walked in it, in its courtyards. Is that the fulfillment? Is that all there is to be expected? Uh, So much more to go. I'm going to open up for comments and questions. Um, such as it is. Any thoughts on where we're going with this theme of glory? Any thoughts on uh, the great reversal and resurrection, which is a theme in Scripture? Cindy in the back. Um, well, 
the Lord's, I mean, that plays into all this. The Lord's house, this temple in Jerusalem, is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Isaiah chapter 60 talks about Gentiles going to that house. It's a house of prayer. They will worship there. They will minister there. They will serve there. Isaiah chapter 60 is a fulfillment of what Jesus said, that this house will be a house of prayer for all nations. I think that plays into it. But that, you know, it being a place of worship is not the same as the glory dwelling there. So it's um, the Lord wants, it's by the Lord's command that Haggai is telling Zerubbabel, you need to build that house. But he doesn't say you need to build it so that you're going to see my glory fill it like in Solomon's day. You need to build that house because it's important to God, part of which will be when Christ comes, he will walk in his courtyards and he will bring glory to that house, part of which. Somebody else? Cindy. Another Cindy. Nope, nope. If there is a, I mean, it would be Ezra or Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. The temple would have already been done then, so I don't think it would be Nehemiah. Um, I mean, no, I'm sure there isn't. If there is, I made a huge blunder, but I'm sure there isn't. No mention of the glory filling Zerubbabel's temple. Somebody else? Um... So where we will be in two weeks, I want to talk about how are we to understand that prophecy gets fulfilled? How are we to understand prophecy gets fulfilled? When, when the Lord tells Haggai, I'm going to shake the nations and I'm going to bring the treasure of the nations into this house. When the Lord says through Isaiah, the, kings, the kingdoms are going to bring their wealth to Jerusalem. And they're going to carry your children as on their hip. And ships will be coming. In fact, you can't even close the gates of this city. Because people are so busy bringing stuff in. It's like in our country where things are stuck offshore and you can't get it into the, can't get it where people use it. In this city, there's going to be so much wealth being brought into Jerusalem. There's a backlog. You can't ever shut the gates of the city so that all this wealth can be brought in. How was that fulfilled? What does that look like? Has it been fulfilled? Uh, there's, and, and part of the answer is it's layer upon layer upon layer, which I'll explain in two weeks. Um, I wish I were a college professor right now, and I could say, we're going to take a 15-minute break, we're going to come back in, and we'll do the second lecture, but I think I'd be lecturing to myself. So let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.